Today we're going to pick up the book of Genesis. So good morning, everyone. Today we're starting the book of Genesis. We're going to take two weeks and summarize it. Today we're going to pick up Genesis 1 through 11. Next week we'll take up chapters 12 through 50. So if you'll join me in a word of prayer, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I ask your, your blessing on this teaching. Give us ears to hear and allow us to understand your great works so that we might glorify you more rightly. Um, we praise you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. All right, so as Michael introduced last week, we're picking up a survey of the Old Testament. And like I heard an old Bible teacher once say, if we were to walk around with just a little New Testament Bible or a New Testament understanding, we're going to battle with half a sword. So we're starting with Genesis today because, well, that's the first book of the Bible. And like any book, the author has a very specific purpose for giving us the information in those opening chapters. Everything else that follows is set up by the opening chapter. So the question that I want to ask is, what would we be missing if we didn't have this particular section of Scripture? That's something we can think about throughout this series. What would we be missing if we didn't have... Genesis 1 through 11. As its name implies, Genesis is about beginnings, and the word Genesis means origins. And hopefully you'll see in this morning's 10,000-foot flyover how many foundational Christian doctrines originate right here in these first 11 chapters. And in your handouts, I promise you there's not a test, but you'll see a list of the majority... (laughs) I promise you, Jan, no test. You'll see that most of the origins are listed right there. And if you want to take notes and have references for where we see these things originate, uh, please do so. Even though this is only a very small section of the Bible, these 11 chapters pack a punch and they encompass fully 2,000 years of world history, almost one-third of human history. Throughout history, the Jews... And the Christian church and even our Lord Jesus affirmed Moses, the prophet Moses, as the author. And he would have been writing sometime after the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, some 12 to 14 centuries before the Messiah, before Jesus came. Speaking of history, this book of Genesis is known as historical narrative. As Michael alluded to last week, there are a number of different genres throughout the Bible We have allegory, we have poetry, we have parables, we have prophecy, we have the Gospels, we have apocalyptic language like you see in the book of Revelation. This is none of those, but it is historical narrative. Speaking of history, does anybody want to guess how many times the New Testament authors allude to or directly reference the book of Genesis? This is the interactive part. How many times? A lot. That's, that's a good guess. <laughs> Lower. 103, but you get a bonus for guessing. Thank you. 103 times. 60 of those allusions or references are to Genesis 1 through 11. So we can safely say that the New Testament authors, including our Lord Jesus, overwhelmingly presumed Genesis to be a historical document. And in fact, the entire Bible regards its own history as history. 
its own narrative as history, faithfully remembered and interpreted, and it calls on us, the readers, to do the same. Michael told us last week, of course, we're not going to get into vast detail on any of these books. We're going to take a 10,000-foot view. Um, but I hope that you'll see in, in what we go through today and the rest of the series that there is one theme that holds the entire Bible together, and you'll see it here in Genesis, and that is God's plan to redeem mankind from sin for his glory. From beginning to end, first page to last page, that's the theme of both Genesis and the entire Bible. It's God's plan to redeem mankind from sin for his glory. So let's dive in with Genesis chapter 1. My ESV Bible calls this the creation of the world, and I'm going to quote from my second favorite Bible teacher and theologian after J.D. Summers. That would be Dr. John MacArthur. MacArthur says this, Scripture begins in Genesis 1 with a series of propositional statements giving a very straightforward account of the origin of the heavens and of the earth and of everything on the earth. It opens with one very clear, unmistakable statement in Genesis 1.1, and if anyone has that and can read that very loudly and authoritatively, could someone please say Genesis 1.1 for me? Thank you. That is not an ambiguous statement, is it? It's not an unclear statement. Frankly, it, it's a statement that doesn't really need any explanation. Pre-Darwin, no one was confused by this statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From right there in the first chapter, Genesis proceeds to tell us that in six days, God created everything in the cosmos and on the earth and in it, and he actually gives us the order in which it was done. I'll interject my own commentary here. By the way, Big Bang theorists say that God got the order completely wrong, just as an aside. But it is so simple and so clear and so unmistakable that even a small child can understand Genesis 1.1. I'll add a little more commentary just to get this out of the way here. Creation had no observers and cannot be repeated It's not observable. It's not repeatable. The scientists tell us that anything that has to be scientific is observable, testable, repeatable. Creation was a one-off event, so it is not scientific. If you want to understand creation, you have to understand theology. That is the study of God. Creation, this is important, did not happen by any uniform, predictable, observable, repeatable, fixed natural laws. Creation was a series of supernatural, instantaneous, inexplicable miracles. Supernatural. That's why there is nowhere in the Genesis account, as you read Genesis 1, in any place where evolution is mentioned or even hinted at. There are no natural processes in creation. They're all supernatural. And if we can accept that, that helps us a lot with understanding this text. It was all supernatural and miraculous. There's only one creation account, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And since no one was here when he created, we only have God's eyewitness account. And we can either believe that or reject it, but that's really all there is. Finish with my commentary on that. 
So we see here in Genesis chapter 1 that God is the creator of all things from which glory comes to him. It shows us, very importantly, that he's not a part of creation. He is distinct from creation. Genesis 1 tells us that he created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them at the beginning of time, showing that God is eternal, that he's always existed even before time began. Shows that there's only one God, the creator God of the Bible, and these facts are a devastating refutation of some New Age religious philosophies, pagan notions that you'll hear Oprah or Deepak Chopra promote. Things like polytheism, the belief in multiple gods, even though Oprah claims to be a Christian, she's open to the notion of different gods leading to heaven. It's also a devastating refutation of pantheism, which is the belief that the universe is just a manifestation of God, or penentheism, which says that God exists in all things. From the very first verse that we heard, we're given irrefutable evidence of the Creator. About 2,100 years later, the Apostle Paul comments in Romans 1.20 saying this, For his invisible attributes, namely his divine power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse. But there's more than just the origin of the cosmos in Genesis 1. In verses 24 through 25, if you've got your Bibles, we learn of the origin of life. The origin of life. More importantly, in in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 1, we learn of the origin of human life. And I'll read that for us. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And of course, he's referring to the Trinity here. I always wondered who he was talking to. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And you notice here, the importance of being created in his image and in his likeness. Not only is man given dominion over the animal kingdom and told to subdue the earth, man is created unique and distinct from the animals. We are given intellect, reason, logic, the ability to discern right from wrong. We're given the ability to communicate and to have relationship with the creator God. Genesis 1.31 closes the chapter. We'll end chapter 1 here. What does he pronounce everything that he's created at the end of day 6? What does he say it is? Very good, good, exactly. Now, a little more commentary here. Genesis 1 and the first four verses of Genesis chapter 2 can be read in one block because they give a chronological account of what happened during the creation week. The first four verses of chapter 2 actually give us a summary, a synopsis of what just happened. So they can be read in one block. Genesis 2, verse 5, picks up on day 6. And this is important because I've read a lot of commentaries from theologians who seem to think that Genesis 2 is just a retelling of chapter 1. And that can lead to a little bit of confusion because it talks about 
plants and shrubs coming into being. And they're like, well, in Genesis 1, we read about those coming in on day 3. How come they weren't there? And So Genesis 2 picks up, and it zooms in on day 6 in the Garden of Eden, and it focuses on those events from Adam's perspective. I hope that helps. So here's what happened on day 6. If you look, in verse 7, God creates Adam. Verses 8 and 9, he creates the Garden of Eden. And in verse, verses 15 through 17, he puts Adam in the garden and he gives him very specific instructions. Does someone have Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17? Yeah, could you read that for us, Michael? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Very specific instructions there. That's the only instructions that we really get from Moses about something they cannot do. You should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thank you. In verses 23 through 24, these are pivotal pivotal. Um, scriptures. God creates Eve, and then here in 23 and 24, we have the origin of marriage. The origin of marriage as created by God. This is where we get our definition of marriage, which, by the way, our Lord Jesus affirmed in Matthew 19. He quoted these two verses when he was addressing the Pharisees. Remember, he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. One woman, one man, Adam and Eve. We notice no gender confusion, not Adam and Steve. Right here in the very beginning, that's God's definition for marriage, male and female. So why are Genesis 1 and 2 so foundational to the rest of the Bible? Because first of all, as we read, they established that there's only one divinely powerful creator God who made all things from Nothing, ex nihilo, we say. These two chapters also lay the foundation of what the rest of the Bible will be getting back to. You see, when God pronounced everything very good, we saw everything was perfect, even the relationship between man and God. So here in the first two chapters, everything is great. And you're not going to see that again until the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 is where things are restored. So in the meantime, all of creation is groaning, anticipating the return to perfection that we see right here. Now we move to chapter 3, the fall, or the fall of man. This is a critical chapter. We'll spend some time here because here we come to the supreme problem of our world, evil. And this is an important, a vitally important chapter to understand because if we don't understand the entrance of evil in the world and the purpose and why God has allowed it for his glory. If we don't understand the purpose and entry of evil in the world, then we won't understand the human condition. That's my condition. That's all of our condition. And if we don't understand that, then we have a hard time understanding or appreciating God's solution to solve that condition. So Genesis 3 is very important. Verses 1 through 7, if you look at that, We don't have time to read everything here, but we read about the entrance of evil in the world. God has specifically, remember, given Adam and Eve explicit instructions not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here we have our introduction to Satan, the devil, who 
invades God's creation in the form of a serpent. Why a serpent? I've always wondered. I don't know. But that's how he manifests himself here in this, in this passage. Notice what he says to Eve. This is, this is really interesting. He says, did God really say that if you eat from that, you'll die? Surely you won't die. And this is the origin of Satan's primary tool against believers, and that is questioning the word of God or misconstruing the word of God. And you can think of a million instances in our culture today of how that still manifests itself. Even in the church, we ask, did God really say that? So this is why it's so important, and I love the fact that Redemption Hill is doing this study to pick up our Bibles and understand God's word, right? Did God really say? That's what Satan did. And so it was very effective. It's still a very effective technique. And in fact, Adam and Eve did disobey, and they ate from the tree. The Apostle Paul commented about 2,100 years later. He wrote this in Romans 5.12. He said that through that one single act, Sin entered the world. Through that one act of Adam, through one man, he says, sin entered the world, and through that sin, death came into the world. So this is where we learn what sin is. This is the origin in Scripture of sin, and we learn here the definition of sin. This is critical. It's disobedience to God, disobedience to his word. Right there in Genesis 3. Moving forward in verses 17 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3. God tells Adam and Eve that because of their disobedience, the ground will be cursed. They will be cursed. Their descendants will be cursed. So when sin entered the world, obviously creation was no longer very good. As for the curse on humanity, God tells us that because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, things will be much, much worse for them. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be difficulty in surviving, things that we still see manifest today. And of course, God tells them they'll now eventually die. In verse 19, you'll note that he says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And I want to inject some more commentary here. It's really, really important to understand that the fall is not just merely a spiritual event. It's not some mystical, metaphysical existential event. It's not allegorical. It's not poetic. It's not some mythical fairy tale. This is a critical moment in world history. It happened in real space-time to two very real people, and it explains why we live in a corrupt world filled with sin, misery, abuse, tears, and death. It's an event that happened that affected both the spiritual world and the physical world. We think that this is when the second law of thermodynamics and its law of entropy came into being. All things in the material world are constantly downgrading towards a state of less organization. By the way, that's in direct refutation of what the evolutionary theorists say, that everything is going up. That's not what we see, and it began right here. The fall explains very clearly how we can answer that age-old big question, what in the world, what is wrong with the world? But Genesis chapter 3 also explains another one of life's big questions. What's the solution? What's the solution to what is wrong with the world? In verse 15, this is a pivotal moment in history. We see God's promise of a redeemer to come. Now, albeit this is maybe a seedling 
of the gospel. We don't see this blaringly clear. In hindsight, knowing what the New Testament gives us, we can see it clearly, but it's definitely here. Listen to this in verse 15, chapter 3. God is rebuking the serpent for his role. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And who is he talking about there? Jesus, yeah. Right here we have the first promise of a savior. And we see that despite man's sin and their disobedience, God is a merciful God. And by his grace, he immediately promises a savior to come. That out of this woman, an offspring will come that will destroy the enemy. And of course, we know that when we talk about a human offspring, we're talking about the seed of a man, but Satan had to know. It tells us very clearly the seed of a woman is different. That's a virgin birth. And that's amazing to me. Um, The promise of a Savior originates right here in the very first book of the Bible. It's not just found in the New Testament. Genesis 3.15, the promise of a Redeemer. Amazing. Um, Before we leave Genesis 3, there's one other thing I wanted to mention because this is um, amazing to me also. We see the origin of God's requirement for a blood sacrifice for atonement of sin. And again, it's not crystal clear. We have hindsight that brings this into focus. Um, Verse 21 of Genesis 3, does someone want to read that for us, please? Genesis 3, verse 21. Garments of skin. What did Adam and Eve, if you look back at verse 7, what did they clothe themselves with when they found out that they were naked? Leaves. Leaves. So something interesting here. What had to be sacrificed in order for God to upgrade their, their uh, clothing? An animal or animals. So I don't think that was just to give them longer lasting clothing. There had to be a blood sacrifice. And this is a foreshadowing of a theme found throughout the Old Testament. The sins of the people would require a blood sacrifice in order to be forgiven. And you'll see this later in Leviticus. I don't know who's teaching on Leviticus. But um, we'll see that the sins of the people were covered by animal sacrifices, by the priests. And of course, these sins were only temporarily covered by these animal sacrifices. So they had to be continually given And what they were still waiting for was the perfect sacrifice that would completely cover God, uh, completely and permanently satisfy God's perfect law and remove sin permanently. And we know who that lamb was, don't we? Who was that? Jesus Christ. His blood would be poured as a sacrifice. So I find that amazing that we see that, again, in seedling form, albeit it is there. Let's move forward to Genesis chapter 4. It doesn't take very long to see the effects of sin in the world. When when you realize the very first offspring of Adam and Eve commit murder. Cain, in a, a fit of jealous rage, offs his brother. And God curses Cain and he removes him from his father's lands. He says, you'll be a fugitive. And here we also see the origin of something else that'll go throughout scripture. We'll see a division between God's elect, those who fear and honor and worship him and whom he favors, and his non-elect, those who choose not to follow God. You could almost by default say they're de facto Satan followers. 
But God is always, always good to his promise. He had promised Eve that through her generations, a savior would come. And he blesses Adam and Eve with another son, Seth. And we'll learn that he was the second generation in the lineage of the Messiah. Okay, now we'll move to Genesis chapter 5. And before you think, oh my gosh, not a genealogy. I hope you'll understand that these are very critical chapters. Genesis chapter 5. I want to tell you why. Because a lot of people, their eyes glaze over and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. But uh, verse 1 states that this is the book of the generations of Adam. So beginning with Seth, we have 10 births recorded here. And they represent 10 generations of Adam's descendants. You'll see in Genesis chapter 11, we get another genealogy. And that begins and picks up with Noah's son, Shem. Features 10 more generations all the way to Abraham, which is where we'll pick up next week in Genesis 12. Together, these two genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 represent approximately... 1,948 years of history, human history. And Michael, I'm not going to give a date for creation, but Jesus did say in the beginning was when God created them. I don't think he meant 14 billion years after the Big Bang. So um, it's not hard to add up how old uh, things are. Uh, But it's interesting because these two genealogies are definitively time-stamped with the exact age of the father. For example, Adam was 130 when he had Seth. And it goes that way when each son was born. And we can't be dogmatic because they don't give the the month and the day. So any estimate could be off by a few decades. But uh, that's not the purpose of these genealogies for geeks like me that want to know how, how old the earth is or how old mankind is. It's really not the emphasis. The purpose is twofold for these genealogies. They're called chronogenealogies, by the way. I wanted to mention this because they're not like the genealogies in Luke and Matthew because they give chronological data. But they're vital because, first of all, they're given in Scripture to show, once again, that the Bible is real history. Okay? And, get this, we're all descendants of Adam. It's very important. Which means, the implications are, that we are all related. Amen? We're distantly related. Even the secular geneticists after the Human Genome Project have now come out and stated There are not multiple races. There's only one human race. And I want to refer to, (laughs) I've got a section of my library at the back table. There is a book back there. It's called One Blood, One Race. And I would strongly encourage anybody that wants to understand this better. If, If somebody takes that book, by the way, there are a lot of skeptical questions I could cover. We don't have time for this, but suffice it to say that I've got a lot of resources back there. If, if it doesn't have my name on it, please take it home. You see this at the bottom of your handouts. If it's got my name on it, bring it back for my library. Um, but uh, One Blood, One Race. There's also a YouTube talk by Ken Ham, H-A-M, called One Blood, One Race. But these genealogies show that we're all distant relatives all the way back to Adam. Secondly, these genealogies show us that the Son of God stepped into history and he fulfilled the promise of a Savior that God gave in Genesis 3.15. And the promise was that he would save the descendants of Adam, all of whom, like we said, suffer under the human condition of sin. So the primary purpose of these two genealogies is to show that Jesus fulfilled this promise. And, And of course, in John 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was with God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was the word? Jesus. He was the living word, the incarnate word. These genealogies show us that's true. All right. <clears throat> Got to move on here. Genesis chapter 6. My Bible entitles this Increasing Corruption on the Earth. And by the time we pick up six, we're now ten generations beyond Adam. We're at Noah. And right now, we've seen sin degenerate exponentially. Mankind is horrible. In fact, Moses comments in verse 5, and he uses some very specific words. He says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God declared a unique judgment on the world, saying that he would blot out man and the animals from the face of the land with a worldwide catastrophic flood. God ordered Noah to build a massive ship to preserve each of the kinds, not the species, by the way, another book in the back on that, of air-breathing creatures he'd created <laughs> Genesis 7 and 8, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but we get the details of the flood, which contrary to what most people think, we always brought up with those little cartoonish Bible story books, uh, they depict the ark as a little teeny bathtub toy with animals sticking out. The physics, you can just tell, dictate that that thing would have sunk. I think those books do us a great disservice because there's a lot of data um, that is amazing to me. We don't have time, but it lasted... Well over a year, in fact, they were on the ark. It's time-stamped in Genesis 7 and 8, 371 days. This was no local flood contained in the Mesopotamian Valley. In fact, it covered all the highest mountains of the world by over 20 feet. I don't know how you do that with a local flood. Um, as J.D. pointed out last year, a lot of you weren't here when J.D. went through Genesis. Uh, but when we get to chapter 6, uh, sometimes we are just amazed that God would destroy mankind. It seems so shocking and so severe. How could he do that? But the Apostle Paul, remember, he commented about the potter and the clay. Do you think about a potter? He's forming clay and he looks at it. He has the right to just redo it and make it again. The clay has no right to say to the potter, why did, why did you do that? Why did you make me this way? What's more amazing, as J.D. pointed out to us last year, What's more shocking is that God chose to save anyone, right? Based on what we know about the human condition. But God is merciful. And Noah, although he was not without sin, I always wondered that. Was he perfect? No, he was not perfect. But verse 8, Moses tells us, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God chose to preserve him because he Remembered his promise to Eve, and he knows, never goes back on his promise. Genesis 6, 9 tells us a little bit more information. Noah was blameless in his generation. What does that mean? I think we have a little insight into what that means. Because God obviously has preordained and preserved a particular line of descendants from which the Messiah would come. So Noah was predestined in this favored line to come. God preserved Noah and his family, not because he was perfect, but because God is merciful. And God never forgets his promises. By the way, keep in mind what God had said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. This is interesting to me. He says, 
I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And we've got to take that seriously. What in the world does he mean by the serpent's seed? And we really don't have enough information in Scripture to know why certain lines chose to follow Satan and reject God, but they certainly existed. We know this from Scripture. And God obviously allowed this and had a plan for it. What is that plan usually when anything, anything happens in the Bible? R.C. Sproul always taught his grandchildren and his congregation to say, why did that happen? For his glory. For his glory. So, even after all humanity had been wiped out by the flood, and we could say, well, gosh, that didn't solve the problem of sin. Do you think perhaps God didn't intend to solve the problem just yet? But he did, if you recognize, he demonstrated again his holiness. When you are holy, you cannot be around sin. And if you are holy, you are just, and you must, as a just person, a just being, punish sin. And that's what he did. He solved a massive crisis in wickedness with that judgment of the flood. But through this, not only was his power and his holiness demonstrated, also was his grace. And now we move to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, God made a covenant, we're all familiar with this, most of us, with Noah. And he promised he would never again destroy the world by water. And he gave the rainbow as a sign of this covenant. And this should be a devastating refutation to anyone that thinks it was a local flood because we still see rainbows, don't we? We've still had local floods, big floods. They didn't last a year, and they haven't destroyed the world. God is good to his promises, amen? Let that rainbow be a promise and a reminder. God also gave Noah and his sons the command that they were to be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And this was a very important command because you'll notice in chapter 9, he says it in verse 1. And if you look down at verse 7, he repeats this command. Usually when something is repeated in Scripture, what does that mean? It's very important. Very important. So as chapter 9 closes, Noah's son, Ham, displays a very evil nature. We won't go into the details, but he was not a good guy. And this resulted in Noah cursing Ham's son, Canaan. So Noah curses his grandson, Canaan, and all his descendants. Now, why do I bring this up? Why is this important? Because as we learn in Genesis chapter 10, which, by the way, Genesis 10 is known as the table of nations. This is, again, something I always just glazed over. Who cares? But it is important because through the line of Noah's grandson, Canaan, came the following evil people, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are people that hated God's people. God did not want his people intermingling with them, with their culture, with their paganism. And so eventually, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, God eventually will command the Israelites to destroy these people, every man, woman, and child. So the descendants of Canaan also founded the cities. I think you've heard of these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you heard of those? Um, Ham had a couple other sons. Boy, they were not nice people. From them came the Philistines. Remember the Philistines? The Egyptians who eventually would enslave the entire nation of Israel. The Ninevites and the Babylonians, another evil, evil nation. 
This was an evil line that descended through Noah's grandson, Canaan, who was cursed because of his father, Ham's evil. And again, we know this from Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. Now, a little commentary here on Genesis 10 and 11 as we move to close here. Genesis 10 precedes Genesis 11 in Scripture, but not chronologically. You see, Genesis 10 summarizes, gives a synopsis of what happened in Genesis 11. Genesis 11 tells us how it happens, okay? That always confused me. They both have genealogies, but like I mentioned earlier, Genesis 11 gives us chronological data in its genealogies that connect the generations down to Abraham. Very interesting. Let's talk about Genesis 11 for a little bit. The Tower of Babel. Some say Babel. I've learned that it's actually in Hebrew. Michael, you may correct me on this, but I believe it was pronounced Babel. Okay, I never knew that. I call it Babel, so forgive me. Um, Remembering God's command to the people when they came off the ark. Again, he reiterated twice. He said, spread out over all the earth and fill the earth. But again, man chose to disobey and they were congregating together in Babel. And one of the guys that was leading this nation was Nimrod. He came through that famous line. He was not a good guy. Um, And they started building a tower. As you know, a tower, they tried to reach the heavens without God And God saw what was happening, and so he intervenes once again with another unique judgment, and he brought total chaos, total confusion. In fact, that's what Babel means in Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken, confusion. Okay, And this is where we see the origin of different languages and people groups. The result of this judgment was a dispersion of the human race to separate geographic regions where we pick up different cultures. This is why we have different languages. This is why we have confusion in the earth and not everybody can get together. But this event marks the origin of the different languages and of the different people groups around the world. So, chapter 11 ends by listing the generations of Shem leading up to Abraham. Again, Shem was one of the sons of Noah. And we have now, in just under 40 minutes, (laughs) done a 10,000-foot flyover of almost 2,000 years of the early history of man. And I hope you can see how many, like we said, critical, foundational Christian doctrines are found right here in Genesis 1 through 11. So again, what would we miss out on if we didn't have these 11 chapters? A lot, a lot. It's critical to understand these things. And so now, Moses is ready to record Abraham's calling from God. And with this calling, we will open up next week the second major division of the Old Testament. We'll pick up Genesis 12 through 50. We just covered a lot of ground, didn't we? Let's, let's pray real quick in closing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for who you are. You are the creator, God. You are the one and only true creator. It is amazing, Lord, that you've chosen to favor us and uh, to, to bring us here to understand your word more clearly. I ask your blessing on our efforts to pick up your word and to understand it, Lord. May we submit. May we submit to your word. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Uh, We fall far short, but we know that you did promise a redeemer. And it's through his work, not ours, his blood, that we're 
cleansed and, and sanctified, Lord, and we praise you for that work. And Lord, I pray for us as we go through your scriptures in this series that you would bless the hearing of your word. Grant us the gift of faith, Lord. And we pray these things in your precious son Jesus' holy name. Amen.